On this episode of the The Sam D Podcast, I get into the Brian Flores class action lawsuit against the NFL and several teams. This is an amazing moment. This is potentially a watershed moment when it comes to diversity and inclusion in the hiring ranks of professional sports. But will we actually get there? Who's to blame here? Who's been an accomplice to help the professional ranks continue to keep blacks and minorities in general out of the coaching ranks? On this episode, I dig into that and more and try to give you some historical context and how things go in other sports and other walks of life. I oftentimes don't talk my shit, but this one was a good one. El primero de mayo. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the The Sandy Podcast. I am your host, Sam Dusenberry Jr. Follow me on Twitter at The Samd. That's T H E E S A M D. Subscribe and rate to the podcast five stars, nothing less. Tell a friend. Available at all major podcasts and platforms. Musical production done by May First Music. Support him at soundcloud.com slash May First Music. For all content, audio, and visual, including trash narratives, check out thesamd.com. Have we reached a moment, the apex, where the blood, sweat, and tears will now come to fruition? The seed that was planted, will it now grow? The flower that was planted, will it now blossom? With the potential landmark moment of today, will this lead to the thing? And you know what the thing is. All the work, all the money, all the meetings. Will we come to the moment where we can all come together and celebrate? Where we can all come together and unite? Where we can all come together and elate At the moment when Hove owns a team. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, capitalist Hove, where is he? Too busy put on at a halftime show, huh? So hard to do a L.A. halftime with Dre and him. It's a lot of it's a lot of things you have to do behind the scenes. Y'all don't understand. Y'all don't understand. It's out of your pay grade. It's out of your pay grade. It's over your head. Because, you know, Hove making a call and getting Dre and all of them hooked up, that takes a lot of time. Especially when you live in LA. That takes a lot of time to get all of those stars together that, you know, you can't worry about aligning yourself with a league that has been systemically and institutionally racist. That takes a lot of time on your hand to plan a halftime show. And here we are. Brian Flores has set the sports world and the sports media landscape and everything else in between ablaze with a class action lawsuit. A class action lawsuit against a number of teams and the NFL itself. Now, here's where it gets really important. Because of the fact that it's a class action lawsuit, And I know if you go on social media, everyone thinks they're a lawyer. But this is what it really is. Because it's a class action lawsuit, as someone that's been a part of class action lawsuits and arbitrations in a prior work life, 
This opens the door not only for the one and a half black coaches that are currently in the NFL. Yes, one and a half. Such is life. But this also opens the door for the coaching candidates that are black and brown that have been on the list. The NFL, much like other sports, and we'll get there, but we're talking about the NFL right now. So the NFL has a list that owners, GMs have to go through to, you know, check off the box of, hey, we did an interview, we interviewed a minority, and we get to check the box that we have adhered to the Rooney Rule. So this opens the door for the one and a half black coaches that currently are employed in the NFL. This opens the door for the coaching candidates that are on that list that teams have to adhere to for the Rooney Rule. And the same thing also goes for GMs and GM candidates. So past and present are able to now join if it goes through the court process and the grand jury and, and go through all of that and it gets seen and it gets solidified. If a judge and a jury agrees that this is viable, this opens the door for coaches past, candidates past to now join this lawsuit and all the receipts that they have. So it's not just going to be the Bill Belichick text that we have seen. It's not going to be Brian Flores' allegation of Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, willing to pay him 100 racks, 100K, to tank games. It's going to be more than just Brian Flores' stories, allegations, and receipts from that. It could open up the door to the whole history of the NFL which we know is sorted, especially when it comes to racism and not only the coaching ranks, but in the front offices. So this here is a monumental moment. This here can really shake the pavement. It can open a hole. What has to happen is a unified front. What has to happen is a willingness to risk it all. This is what Brian Flores has done. He has risked it all. He's not going to coach again in the NFL. He's not. This is going to be a cap situation. When this first thing came out, I had people hit me up. I was like, this is cap. And not cap as in CAP. This is cap as in Kaepernick. He is risking it all. He's willing to let it go. I mean, he's essentially walked away from the National Football League. He's walked away from the shield. He's walked away from the employment opportunities that he felt he was never really going to get a fair shot at ever again. He's walked away from that for the culture. He's walked away from that because he was tired, tired of enduring the bullshit. And that's something that goes largely unnoticed and largely basically not spoken about in the ranks of when you're a minority in these types of positions, And one day very soon, I'll speak to my experience on that. When you're in a minority in these positions, in these buildings, you have to endure a lot of bullshit for the sake of, well, if I give this up, they're not going to hire another one like me. So I have to endure to hopefully stay here long enough so that the powers that be realize someone like me can do this gig so then they'll hire some more, which is very naive. It's a very naive approach. I, I would I would shit you not. But what else do you have? When you're in this position where you're 12, 13 percent of the country. And if you go into the higher ranks of these companies, 
the minority percentage is below 5%, if that, what are you supposed to do but hope? You could be seen as a cynic. You could be seen as a pessimist. But the fact of the matter is like, look, I'm just trying to hang on, dog, so the next one could come. Pause. I'm trying to ride this wave and hang on to this gig long enough that I see a couple other faces that look like me and then I could finally let go and bounce. Teach them the game, put them on, and then bounce. Brian Flores has decided that the dream that he once had is no longer viable, is no longer attainable, is no longer a thing that he can turn into reality. And that's a hard thing to digest. It's a hard thing to come to grips with. The thing that you've worked so hard for, put in the hours for, travel to cities you don't want to go back to, spent time away from your family, your friends, the networking you had to do, the relationships you had to build and foster, the tape you had to watch, the players you had to scout knowing damn well they weren't up to snuff, all the things you had to do to get to a point to reach the top of the top. There's only, what, 32 of them jobs? There's only 32 of them jobs. And look how hard it took for him to get there. While you have someone like Josh McCown, who's never coached. He's volunteered at a high school and wasn't even calling plays there. Yet he's in line to get one of those 32 jobs in Houston. Now take a look at what Brian Flores had to do and what Josh McCown has done and tell me that there's not systemic and institutional racism in the NFL. I would love for you to sit there and try to explain to me with a straight face with full cognizance of how that is not exhibit A of institutional systemic racism. Time after time, they live their truth and they speak their truth right in front of us, yet we're so shocked when it comes out, I've become numb, numb to the stories, numb, numb to the allegations, numb to the reports. This stuff, it bounces off me now. This one to me hits slightly different because Flores is blowing it up or he's attempting to. Ultimately, I don't know if he'll actually get the ripple effect that ideally he and I and I'm assuming the rest of you listen to this pod would, would actually want. But the fact that he was willing to jump out the window and put his name on it and blow it all up. There's a respect factor in that. There's a merit there, despite the NFL's bullshit statement that came out and basically said, within an hour of the class action lawsuit, within an hour, to come out and throw it all out and say, this is all without merit. It's like a 58, 59 page lawsuit. The the doc is like 58, 59 pages. And the NFL comes right out an hour later. Oh, this is all without merit. Protect the shield. Protect the shield at all costs. Never accept anything. Roger Godell jumped out that window and finally admitted that the league was wrong when it came to Colin Kaepernick only because Patrick Mahomes, the largest star in the game, said something. Put his name on it. It took all of that. They tap danced around it. They threw a bag at Hove and gave Rock Nation a bunch of bread and said, here, Negro, do some halftime shows. They went over there and got Jenkins and all them boys, Anquan Bolton and all them boys, and threw them some bread here. The Players Coalition, go do something. Make us look good now. Go, shoot. But it wasn't until Mahomes put his neck out there 
and says something. It says something of substance that hit. Because it wasn't a generic thing. It was a monumental thing for someone of his stature and his age and his class to come out like that. Patrick Mahomes grew up a rich kid. He didn't have to put his neck out there like that. Look, we could talk about his fiance and his brother and all that. that, that that's bullshit for other pods to talk about. Go back to what Mahomes actually did. He grew up privileged. He grew up affluent. Son of a former athlete that made money, substantial money. Not today's money, but in his era, Mahomes, Pops, made bread. So the fact of the matter is, is that he was willing to stick his neck out there, despite no real reason to. Didn't have to. He doesn't have to fake, relate, or even act like he understands the cause, but he put himself out there again, and it made the league have to bow down. Because he was that big at that time, and he meant that much to the future of the league at that time, that they had to finally acquiesce and listen. Will someone, anyone, over the next week or so, you've seen some players on Twitter tweet their support for Brian Flores, but will someone of Mahomes' stature, there's probably not too many more that are at that stature, but someone close to it, especially as we head into next week, which is going to be the Super Bowl Meteor Row week, will someone else put their neck out there for not only Brian Flores, but for the future of minority coaches because this affects the players more than they may think. If you look at the history of the NFL and their coaches, over the course of all of the NFL, the black coaches that have been hired as head coaches, half of them have been former players. And if you go into the assistant ranks, the number's even higher. So a lot of guys we see playing right now will be trying to get jobs most likely after they retire. If the system doesn't change now, it's going to affect these players currently later. Now, I don't know if they're going to be that forward thinking, but that's the facts. If you go into baseball, all the coaches, all the black coaches, all the black, excuse me, because can't say that in baseball. All the black managers, yeah, managers, coaches is a thing in baseball. The black managers, all of them have been former players, all, and they have a Rooney rule as set up as well in Major League Baseball. I haven't crunched the numbers for the NBA, but I, it's not all, but it's probably similar to the NFL, at least half. So this is clearly defined by the powers that be that are usually old white men to be the way. So if you're a current player and you're given a microphone over the next week or so, to talk about the Super Bowl, to pitch products on Media Row or Radio Row or what have you, you most likely want to be a coach at some point, whether it's at the college ranks. And the college ranks is even worse, by the way. If you talk about the totality of black coaches in the college ranks, it's worse than in the professional ranks. But former players usually want to stay around the game, and the easiest way to do that is to get into coaching. If you don't see that because Brian Flores is willing to blow it all up and walk away from his dream, which could be your dream after your playing days are done, then when are you going to step up? And I know it shouldn't always be on the players, but the fact of the matter is you don't have any sway anywhere else. Where does the culture have its most strongest influence? In the players. 
Because what we've already seen, and it's already been proven time and time again, that it's not going to be in the coaching ranks, and it's not going to be in the front office, and it's damn sure not going to be in the ownership. What up, Hove? So where is the influence and the power for the culture? And it lies in the employee base, which is the players. The players are the employees. The players are the staff. They're the rank and file. We talk about their contracts all the time, about how much money they got and the cap hit and the signing bonuses and incentives. But the fact of the matter is what they make pales in comparison to the people up top. They're high-priced employees. But narratives, social constructs have spun it around to the fact that we look at them like they're the owners. We give them the same energy that we should be giving the owners. And that's what I try to do here on this pod to try to spin that back. That's why I do trash narratives. That's why I come on here and try to spit the real as much as I know how. Because it's all bullshit. When you look at Stephen Ross, he's painted himself and has had help in the media to paint the picture. As being not one of those owners. And you know what I'm talking about when it comes to one of those owners. One of the owners that we all know what type of time they're on behind the scenes. We all know how Jerry Jones gives it up. We all know how the Maras and the Tishes give it up. We all know how Jerry Richardson gave it up. So Stephen Ross has tried to paint himself as to being not one of those and to be more front-facing, more left-leaning. But when you look at his moves, it was all bullshit. He was selling you the dream. He was selling you the narrative. But in actuality, he was those. When you look at the Dolphins, this is kind of who they are. And it starts at the top, right? So it's Stephen Ross. Like, this is who they are. Like, remember, this is the organization that didn't want Mike Tomlin to be their coach because he was too hip-hop. That's a quote. That's not me paraphrasing. The quote, he's too hip-hop by Tomlin, young Omar Epps, too hip-hop. I mean, remember Bullygate, the whole incognito Jonathan Martin thing? And, you know, look, that was the thing, right? That happened, and there's some racial things there, if you know incognito's history. But just the fact that a matter of, you know, To rectify that and to prevent that from happening in the future, the Dolphins organization formed a council of like former players, black and white. Um, I think it was Jason Taylor, who literally is black and white. And then I think it was Jimmy Johnson, Dave Wanstead, and and some others, like a council, like, like a round table of board members that were supposed to meet and help facilitate so that issues like this would never happen again within the locker room, within the organization and the locker room, right? To this day, they have yet to meet. And that story was how many years ago? (laughs) They have yet to meet. Okay? And look, then they had that coke sniffing um, assistant coach. Then they had that a a few years ago. They had that. I mean, he he wasn't caught in 4K like today. I think it was 1080p, but he was out here sniffing lines, bro. They had an assistant coach sniffing lines on cam. So, I mean, you know, Stephen Ross, the the organization that he's been the leader of, he's been running game. He's been running game from an optics perspective. He's been on record of donating money to causes. On the record. 
But if you also dig deep into them tax returns, he's also been donating to the other side in a way heavier fashion. In a more consistent and heavier fashion. And then if you go back and check the files, if you duck, duck, go it, I mean, put in Stephen Ross and Kaepernick. You'll see some perspectives that fit along the lines of what a Jerry Jones might say when he's off that, <laughs> when he's off that blue label. And that we won't get into the whole gambling aspect of it where allegedly, much like Bob Kraft and the bluest of blue check boys, Adam Schefter, he might have been trying to be in the mix with a gambling app just a couple of years ago. And Florida sports betting, they're, they're trying to go through some things to get sports betting legal out there. But guess who was trying to be at the forefront? When it comes down to it, you always got to follow the money. And you see where he puts his money more times than not, it's into causes that are anti-culture than pro-culture. This is who he is. And now we have this Florida stuff. And I told you on the last episode about the smear campaign. And now this is Brian Flores' retort to the smear campaign. They tried to run this man down with the angry black man tropes. And people in Miami believed it. Which is a shame. But it also speaks to the culture of Miami. This black man with a predominantly Hispanic last name is out here trying to win games for a lowly franchise that hasn't been shit since the mid-80s. And then as soon as the black coach with the predominantly Hispanic last name gets thrown out and gets fired for an alleged just cause and gets some pushback for that alleged just cause, now they double and triple down by using the press, using the media to leak fallacies. All of a sudden, Mans didn't speak to his coordinators for weeks, if not months. All of a sudden, he was brooding, short with people. What does that sound like? That sounds like angry black man stereotypes. And that's something you have to fight against as someone that's in this industry. That's something, or I'm sure y'all in y'all workplace, that's something you have to fight against. There's a connotation automatically when you're seen as the angry black guy. I go through it. I can have a very stoic face. And there's been plenty of times where people, once they get to them, are like, oh, I never knew you were like this. Like, well, well, why would you think that? Oh, but you seem so serious. Oh, that means angry black man to me. Or if you defend yourself, if someone says something that you feel is out of line, you're put in that same box, angry black man. When you speak truth to power, you get checked with that box, much like they try to check the box with the Rooney rule. When you try to speak truth to power, you get checked with that box of angry black man. So the Dolphins went out here and created a smear campaign, and it worked. The tide was beginning to turn. Flores was up for other jobs, had other opportunities, was interviewing for other gigs, and he began to realize that these are just being done for show. None of these are going to be done with any real chance at getting the job. And that's been a thing for other blacks. There's been other thing for other minorities. There's been baseball managers that have withdrawn themselves from the interview process because they know it's just a sham. It's just bullshit. It's just for them. It's just for the team to check a box to say, well, we interviewed a minority, but we're still going to go over here. 
So Flores was being in that rotation. He was on that roster of dudes to interview to check the box. Leslie Frazier is another one. Eric Bieniemy is another one. All these interviews, and Eric Bieniemy still doesn't have a job, but the narrative is, oh, he's a bad interview. He doesn't do great in interviews. Well, what does that mean? For someone that can help build an offense, and we'll get into what happened this past weekend with the games on another episode. We, we got to split all this up because I could go on this for very long, and it's going to be like a two-hour pod if I really get everything off. So you'll get this here, and then you'll get another episode that was supposed to be the originally scheduled episode of talking about the sports part. But this is like an emergency. This trumps everything to me. So you have Eric Bieniemy, who's been the orchestrator of one of the most high-powered offenses that we've seen in a very long time. Four straight AFC championship games. We know about the Super Bowl. So somehow that guy, that guy that created or helped orchestrate an offense that has gone to four straight AFC championship games, has won a championship, that guy doesn't know how to conduct himself in an interview. I'm supposed to believe that. I'm supposed to understand the fact that this guy, with a transcendent offense, can't figure out how to explain himself properly. The man who can sit in a room and help a quarterback, help receivers, help running backs, help tight ends to the point where the offense is damn near unstoppable at times, he can't conduct himself properly in a boardroom talking to an owner and a GM. I'm supposed to believe that. Cool story, bro. But that's what it comes down to. Flores was tired of being in that. When you've worked that hard to get to that spot and you're lucky enough, and you have to use the word lucky because he was lucky enough to actually get a job. He was lucky enough to get one of those 32 gigs. And when it comes right down to it, he was like, well, I don't know when I'm going to be gracious enough to get another one. As we've seen the likes of a Mike McCarthy, a Adam Gase get opportunity after opportunity and with no real acumen to speak of, none on the level of a Brian Flores, you want to give me the, the Mike McCarthy Super Bowl because, you know, sure, it happened. It was a thing. But we know who that really was about. And we also know how he basically lied in his Dallas Cowboys interview and has admitted as such. He sold Jerry a bag of lies. He sold Jerry Jones on the fact that he had been watching tape. He had been in the lab cooking up different and new schemes and he was evolving with the game. He was up to speed on the analytics, the DVOA. He was up to speed on all of that. That's what he said in his interview. And he got the job. And then after he got the job, he admitted that he lied about all of that. That's a thing that happened. Mike McCarthy openly admitted to lying in his job interview and has still kept that job. Now, I'm not going to sit here and be holier than now. I think a lot of us have lied in a job interview. But the fact of the matter is, Mike McCarthy's job is only 32 of those. The jobs that you and I do, there's a lot more than 32. So you can sneak through the cracks and lie and get, get it off. But somehow, in that league, in that pressurized atmosphere, with the billions that are involved behind it, that man was able to lie his way into a gig and keep the gig and was brazen enough to admit that he lied to get the gig. But Eric Bieniemy gives a bad interview. Maybe Eric Bieniemy gives it up. And spits the raw in his interviews. 
but they don't want to hear that. They want the lie. Brian Flores has identified the issue and the problem and is willing to risk it all. And he's willing to put his name on it. And he's willing to go toe-to-toe with the shield. What's next? What's next? There's going to be other coaches. There's going to be coaches at the track. You know, you know Godell's already called Tony. You know Godell's already called Tony Dungy. You want to keep that gig on NBC? You want to keep being the, the liaison to rehabbing players' images? You know what to do. So they're going to trot Tony out here. I'm surprised Tony hasn't put his statement out already. I mean, I'm not going to check his Twitter feed because why would I I follow the son? But I'm sure Dungy's going to be trotted out to take the bullets. And this is what these companies do. And I can speak to that as someone who used to work for a company like that. When the bullets are coming and they're actually aimed at the people they should be aimed at, they will go find some black faces to put in front of those bullets to insulate themselves from that. It happens all the time. It is not a new occurrence. It is a very plain and simple. It's a tried and true move by management. It's, it's essentially management 101. And like I said, one of these days, maybe sooner rather than later, we will air that out. So they'll bring Tony out here to speak what he feels is his truth and he'll throw a bunch of verses at us and chapters and verses to go look up and study and correlate that to whatever the hell's going on with Brian Flores. But I don't think the league understands that we off Tony Dungy. I mean, I'm sure there's a conservative sector, specifically in the South, that will ride for Tony because Tony talks their language, if you catch my drift. But by and large, we off Tony Dungy. So who else is going to step out there and carry the pail for the shield? I mean, we could look at the Players Coalition, Malcolm Jenkins, who's been, who I told y'all, he, he's been protesting the anthem again. No one says a thing. He's been silently protesting the anthem. No one has said word one. So he has the Players Coalition insulation because if he could protest the anthem and nobody's saying anything, then... Maybe he could get off some rhetoric that will coincide with the Shield's position. Been protesting, no one has said anything. Or maybe Hove. Maybe Hove will give y'all maybe two or three bars in, in, in another verse. He gives us about what? A verse a year? A verse or two a year, right? So maybe he'll give us some bars. Can you imagine Hove riding with the Shield when a man from Brownsville is willing to put his neck out there and take the L and walk away. How can you come back to Marcy? I mean, it's not like Hove actually does come back to Marcy anymore, but just in theory, how can Hove walk the block knowing that someone from Brownsville, Billy Dan's in them, someone from Day Block is actually talking the talk and walking it? It's a shame. It's a shame that the pawns that have been placed to take the bullets are openly accepting the bullets just for a bag. And what Brian Flores is saying through this class action is it's not about the bag. When Colin Kaepernick took that knee and rode it all the way out 
it wasn't about the bag. We see who's about the bag and who's not about the bag. And you can always make the debate of, well, if I have the bag, then I can use that to facilitate. Sure. But at what cost? Is being the shield, being the bulletproof vest for the NFL worth all the other ancillary things that are to a smaller degree what you're doing on the side? Are those little wins you're able to get on the side that I'm sure he'll say go largely unpublicized worth the big L you have to take in front of the nation defending the shield? When you have the amounts of minorities that the league clearly has to be your bulletproof vest, you can get all this off. You can have a league that's 70% black and have one and a half black coaches coaching that 70% workforce. You can get away with that. Look at what's happening in Washington. They're going to name that team tomorrow. And that's going to get the headlines. But the sexual harassment, the workplace atmosphere, the receipts that have been proven, the emails, which John Gruden now has an ally in a weird way, and Brian Flores, they're both suing the league. Man's justly was run out of the league for emailing homophobic, misogynist, racist rhetoric. And now him and Flores are in the same boat. But let me ask you this. Who you think is going to get the job next? Who you think could work their way back into the league? Gruden, Chucky, or Brian Flores? Gruden was out here sending the most vile things via work email, corporate email. Topless cheerleader picks. Chastising the NFLPA's leader. And he's probably more likely to get a gig than Brian Flores, whose only condemnation is he's the angry black man. This is why the league can do this. This is why the spin is what it is. This is why they have and they pay out the billions of dollars they do to their media partners to spin narratives. When these things drop, make this go away. Here's some bees. Make it go away. You want to publicize these games? You want to air these games? You want to repurpose our content? You want to be a partner of ours? Then anything negative that comes out, make it go away. And this is what you have right now. That Washington thing came and went. They were exchanging topless photos of cheerleaders. They were prostituting out cheerleaders to billionaires. There was a workplace culture that was deplorable. And there's receipts for all of it. Nothing happened. So what's to come of this? Most likely, unfortunately, nothing. But the fact that Brian Flores had enough, hopefully, will plant another seed. Will get another flower to blossom. To get someone else who we might not even know exists right now to come through the ranks. Progress takes time. That's what I've been told my entire life. As you look back from the civil rights era to right now. We won't even get into slavery. 
from the civil rights era to right now, you can look at it in two ways. You can look at it through rose colored glasses and say, well, look, there's a lot of change. There's been a lot of change from the 50s to now. That 70 year run, it's been a lot of change. Sure. The problem is that from the other point of view, when you look at that 70 year run and look at the actual change, not the performative change, and that's going to be a huge thing as we go forward here. Actual change, not performative. When you look at the actual change, not that much has changed. Yes, we're not being lynched to the numbers that we used to be. Because there was a lynching a couple of years ago. I think there was a lynching also last year. So it's still happening. That's what they don't want to tell you. That's what they don't want to admit. They want to talk about the progress. They throw anomalies. Barack was an anomaly. They'll bring up all the anomalies, all the outliers. But the standard practices are still by and large in play. They are in motion. They are still currently happening right now. And this is where we're at. Where we talk about change till the cows come home. We talk about change until we're blue, black in the face. Yet and still, here we are in the year 2022 as we head into 2222, where an entity that makes billions, if not trillions, when you calculate the total value of these franchises, trillions of dollars in value off the backs of a league that's 70% black, where a league has to be forced to interview a minority. The Rooney Rule itself should also be Exhibit A. The fact that a league has to be forced to interview a minority candidate kind of tells on itself We're so bad, we have to make our white owners actually talk to a minority before they go hire the person that looks like them that they already intended to hire off rip. That's how bad it is. When we talk about diversity and and inclusivity, that's the whole point. The whole point is that the system has been so rigged that we have to write bylaws We have to write bylaws and standards and practices to force companies, to force organizations to look at people that don't look like them. That, in essence, is telling on themselves. The fact that a DNI thing even has to exist lets you know how problematic it is. How problematic it is when it comes to race, gender, sexuality, creed whatever else. That's what's at play here. The diversity or the lack thereof is so apparent in these sports leagues, in these professional leagues, in these media organizations, in this world that they have to write into damn near law that you have to at least talk to one. You have to at least consider one. You have to at least interview one. You have to have a quota because we know you don't want to hire them. We're going to make you hire or at least talk to one. That's where we're at.
And that's why you risk it all. Because it's not going to change as it's currently constituted. The Rooney Rule and many others like it are being followed, are being adhered to. There's been a concentrated effort to do so. However, like any other overseer, they have found loopholes to circumvent it. I yell and scream about the point fraud circumventing the CBA and how that can affect players down the line. This is the same thing. The Rooney Rule has been circumvented for decades now, and this is where we're at. We're back at square one where there's literally one and a half black coaches in the NFL. And let's examine that one and that one and a half. The same Mike Tomlin, who was too hip hop to be the coach in Miami, has been in Pittsburgh for X amount of years. And he's one of the longest tenured, if not the, well, no, Belichick's the longest tenured, but he's right, right up there. He's never had a losing season. That's what it takes to still be the one, to be the longest tenured black head coach. You have to never lose. And that's the pressure I spoke about earlier. When you feel like, yo, I got to hang on long enough. I got to be the one because there ain't going to be none after me. I, if we gave Mike Tomlin some true serum, or if we were at a kickback with Mike Tomlin, no cameras around, no phones around, and chopped it up, I'm sure he would say some, some of these things where it's like, yo, dogs, I'm just I got to win because if I don't win, I'm gone. And that's the inherent pressure. While you could be Adam Gase and bomb out of multiple places and still get interviews. Mike Martz can still pop up and get interviews. All these types, these retreads that don't show any success when they're in charge can still just get a look because they looked apart because owners and other front office heights are comfortable with them. Whereas Mike Tomlin is fighting every year to make sure he's got a winning record because he knows the minute he don't, he's on the hot seat. And therein lies the problem. Because when you take that, and pair it with the nepotism, we get pumped up when we see athletes that we grew up with and we see their sons or daughters playing a sport and playing well in a sport. We get hype, right? But where is that on the coaching side? I see Shanahan. I see Haslett. I see Fossil. Where's Art Shell's son? Denny Green, rest in peace. They are who we thought they were. Where's his son? This is what we're talking about. Certain people are allowed to walk in the door and their whole lineage has a pipeline. Whereas for people who look like you and I, there's a huge ass roadblock and there's a tiered staircase that goes into the heavens that you have to climb if you want a chance. And when you have others that look like you that are out there defending it, for a bag, for a clout, to be recognized and, be, be, and to be patted on the head by their overseer, it's deplorable. So all of that goes to say, I respect the fuck out of what Brian Flores is doing. It's been a long time coming, and I'm glad it took someone from New York, someone from Brooklyn, 
someone from the block, someone from a, a verified location, the home of Billy Dance and Lil Fame. The fact that it took someone from there is all I need to know. He means that shit. He's willing to go out on his shield and he's willing to wear it for the cause. If only we had more of those.